For the next little while, we're going to be carrying on our series in the life of King David. And so sort of join the dots, if you like, between where we left off last time, which was two weeks ago with David and Jonathan. I'm going to fill in the gaps before we get to our character that we're focusing on today. So Saul and Jonathan, King Saul and Jonathan, his son, David's kind of best friend, have died. And David mourns that, evidently and obviously. And then David, as has been long promised, is anointed as king. And he's put in place as king over all the tribes of Israel. And Israel, the people that followed God. Uh, David was 30 when he was made king. And the Bible says he reigned for 40 years. In the time of his reign, before we get to where we're going today, he took Jerusalem as a city. We now know that as the city of David, don't we? And he took Jerusalem in this time, and he brought the Ark of the Covenant. This all sounds a bit Indiana Jones, doesn't it? But the Ark of the Covenant is this uh, box, basically, that housed the presence of God. That's how it was thought. In this box were the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments and all other important relics and things that were important to the people of God. And then that was later placed inside the temple in the very holiest bit right in the middle. And that became where you could go and encounter God. Well, one person at least could go and encounter God on the Day of Atonement once per year. David kept winning military victories against different enemies. He defended the people of God against all adversaries. And then we get to 2 Samuel 11, which is where we're focusing today, if you want to turn there. And in 2 Samuel 11, the person that we're looking at David's interaction with today is Bathsheba. Now, lots of you will know this story, whether it's from the Bible or from Jeff Buckley or others. It's a difficult story, a painful one. It's not one for the highlights reel of David's life. And it deals with uncomfortable things, as we will see. And as that happens, that might bring to mind for you memories of uncomfortable things from the past or maybe things that are still going on here today. And right from the outset, before we even dive into the scripture and see what it says and what that might mean for us, I want to say clearly and unequivocally that we want to be the kind of church that helps people journey through that stuff. We're not the kind of church that only wants people when they're on their best or when it's shiny and happy and neat and tidy. We want to be the church and the kind of people that draw alongside people going through difficult things and journey with them as often uh, as they want and in the way that they are comfortable with. We want to be a, a safe church. We've got a safeguarding officer, Joe Curry, who's prayed earlier. We've got people in the diocese who help us to do that in an appropriate way. Joe can be contacted by anyone directly. You don't need to go through me or anything like that. And details are on posters around the church and in the different rooms uh, of the building. The clergy and the staff team take people's well-being and and, uh, overall health as part of their responsibility. We don't want to be the kind of church that no one really cares about what's going on as long as the show keeps going on or anything like that. The church is built of people and things happen for people that we need to journey through together. Joe's there, a safeguarding officer, the clergy, the team are here and we take that really seriously. But we know that we don't have the answers or all of the answers at least. So beyond that, we've got 
a load of organizations, charities, people that can help journey with others in a more professional, in a more detailed, in a more um, thoroughgoing kind of a way. Some charities will be local, some further afield, some might be sources of information, some might be more conversation, therapists and other people like that. But we want you to know really clearly that we want to be the kind of church that deals with this stuff. Like I said, you can talk to Joe at any time. If there's ever anything that goes on here that gives you cause for concern, big or small, I want to tell you to do something about it. Because we want to be the kind of place where things are brought out into the light, as I'll talk about in a moment. We are committed to making St. Peter's as safe and healing and restorative a place as it possibly can be. We believe in that kingdom of God where tears are wiped from eyes and lives are remade, even from disastrous, horrible situations like the one that we're going to see today. And we want to say as well that we are accountable, that we don't think that anyone is above accountability. Things that go on need to be answered for in some ways to make sure that policies and procedures are being followed, to make sure that people are being looked after. Ultimately, within the church, that kind of ends up with me and with the PCC who uh, govern the church with me. But beyond me, there's archdeacons and bishops and diocesan safeguarding officers that hold me to account. We want to know that no one here is beyond the question, is beyond accountability, because we want everyone to know that things that go on here, we desire to be safe and to continue to go on to be safe. We've got policies and systems and things like that, and we'll continue to develop new ones as needed. We're accountable internally and then externally to other agencies and churches and the diocese. And to say it again really clearly, if at any time in this church, but think of that also as activities that go on sponsored by this church, if you like, anything gives you cause for concern, please do something with it. Please tell someone or say, hang on a minute, that didn't seem quite right. And it might be that there was a misinterpretation or misunderstanding, rather. Or it might be that something is needed to be looked into more thoroughly. Some verses in 1 John 1 that I think help give us a bit of a framework for what we're going after. 1 John 1, beginning at verse 5, says this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Our desire then and commitment is to be the kind of church which lives in the light of Jesus brings ourselves and all that that means into the light of Jesus. And in him, there's no darkness, there's no shadow. We want to have fellowship, friendship, communion with him, which brings us and everything that we bring with us, all our baggage, you might want to say, into the light. And once that happens, and as we stay in the light, things begin to change in us. We're cleansed and purified and it also brings us into right relationship, fellowship with one another through the blood of Jesus, which he shared as a loving sacrifice for us on the cross to cleanse us all from sin and wrongdoing. 
We want to be the kind of church that lives in the light of Jesus. And if there's any shadow, if there's any darkness, we want to see that pushed back in his name. So 2 Samuel 11, let's read and talk through it verse by verse. 2 Samuel 11 verse 1 says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Stop there for a second. David wasn't where David was supposed to be. As king over the people, you were supposed to lead into battle. You weren't the kind of strategist that sat around the table and then sent other people off to do your bidding. You were supposed to be there on the front lines. And we see here, David, in the midst of battles, remained in Jerusalem. He was distracted. He wasn't doing what God had asked him to do as king. He should have been out on the front line. Instead, he was at home. And very soon, as we'll see, problems started. I think we need to take that seriously today. Because often it is that problems start when we get off track from the assignment that God's given us. He was supposed to be king and to do everything that being king entailed. He didn't do that. He stayed at home when he should have been out at war. And then, as we'll see, problems besieged him. We, too, can get distracted from what God's asked us to do. And as we get distracted or as we start trying to do something else, that can be the room in which error and difficulty comes to us. Get on with what God's assigned you to do. Do it wholeheartedly. Do it with everything you've got. Don't leave room for distraction because you do it with all your energy, all your time, and all your commitment. Colossians 3 verse 23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Whatever God calls you to do, do it as if he is your boss, your master, the one that you give account to. Don't start getting distracted by doing other things as well. Don't get distracted by letting other people do it and you sit back. Because that almost creates the space in which some of the things that befall David might also befall us. We talk about one of our pillars being wholehearted devotion to Jesus. And what I think would help prevent some of the things that besieged David is if he was more wholehearted, serving God with all of his time, all of his energy, all of his ability, not getting distracted and staying at home when he should have been out in battle. Verses 2 onwards then. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone out to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. David wanders around his palace at night and sees this woman bathing. And at this point, seeing something is not a sin. It's not a problem to see something. We can't help what sometimes takes our gaze. What we do have choice over is whether we continue to look or choose to look away. So David quickly is faced with a decision. What do I do here? 
I've seen someone else who isn't my wife. What do I now do? Avert my gaze, go away, get on with something else. Well, unfortunately, in David's case, not. You might say that her beauty and the moonlight overthrew him, in the words of Jeff Buckley. So he found out more about her, sent other people to do some investigation, and then had her come to him. He found out that she was married, and he was married too. And yet they still went on to sleep together, and she then conceived. Now, we don't know what, if any, level of consent there was on Bathsheba's part. The text doesn't say. So this is definitely adultery, but it could have been much more. And I won't say what we're all thinking because of those in the room. She's never condemned in the text. And I think that's really important to remember. No one ever says she got this wrong. It doesn't later go on to say that God was displeased with her. We don't know. That could have been the case, but it's not said in the text. And so it leaves it open as to whether what was going on was one-sided was an abuse of power from the king who knew that a subject wouldn't say no. But it also begs the question for us that if that is true, and like I say, we don't know definitively, that it leaves room for us today, doesn't it? That what has happened to you that you weren't a part of is not your fault. What has happened to you that you played no part in does not define you and is not on you, if you like. Bathsheba wasn't necessarily at fault for what happened. We don't quite know. But if it was done against her will, with no consent, as an abuse of power from a king, then she is not in the wrong in this. And I don't know your story, and I hope that this doesn't touch a living nerve. But if it does, know that whatever's happened to you that you weren't consenting to, whatever has happened to you that you didn't agree with, is not on you. It doesn't defile you, and it definitely does not define you. David is, as the Bible says, a man after God's own heart. He's one of the heroes of the Old Testament and even the New Testament because of all the effect that he had. But he's still susceptible to lust, to temptation, to abuse his power. And that brings him to ruin. That's an evil thing which affects him, but also affects other people as well. It's not an innocent thing. It's not something to be enjoyed and then move away from once you get a bit more mature. Evil is evil. And it affects you, and it affects other people as well. From verses 6 then until the end of the chapter, it details what David did next. I won't read it all, but you can do on your own time. Essentially, David had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed. Now, he didn't do it directly again, but he orchestrated a situation where he was left defenseless on the battlefield. He knew what was going to happen, but he made sure that someone else fired the arrow. To cover up what had happened, he didn't want Bathsheba to get pregnant and then Uriah ask a question because he was away at war. He just wanted the problem to go away, so he thought. So he had Bathsheba's husband killed. And the very last line in the chapter says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Again, note there, it doesn't say the thing that David and Bathsheba had done. But it's clear that God does not approve. And it's clear that God does not add his blessing to this. In the next chapter, 2 Samuel 12, Nathan, David's son, is sent by God to show David his error. Now that's quite a 
vulnerable thing to do, isn't it? Quite a brave thing on Nathan's part to go up to your dad, who is your dad, but is also the king, and say, hey, you did this thing that's wrong and God knows about it. But Nathan, obedient as he was, followed through. Nathan corrects David. He creates this story in which to show him what the wrong that he's done. And David eventually, well, quite quickly, really, gets to the point of saying, I've sinned against God. And he weeps over what he's done. And he tries to make it right in the way that he's able. David sees his error quickly and he laments it. And we see, because we can read Psalm 51, which is a psalm that David wrote after this event as he's looking back on it. And Psalm 51 is all about David's broken and contrite spirit. It's all about the wrongdoing that he's done and how much he laments it. We get to see what was going on inside his brain because he pens this poem, this song, which says, God, create in me a pure heart again. Get rid of all this wrong stuff in me. He did see his error. And we've got to thank Nathan in much part for that, for his bravery, for the pivotal action that he took in order to see David come to his senses. Psalm 51 begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. David comes to pen that and much more after. As a result of what Nathan confronts him with and the Holy Spirit convicts him in. Comparatively quickly, David comes to his senses, realizes that he's done wrong against God, against Bathsheba, against Uriah, and says, I don't want that to be the case anymore. Take away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, wash that off me, God. Help me to get back to worshiping you in purity. There's three main things that I want to pull out of what I've read and what we've seen from Scripture today that I think will be helpful. And if not now, helpful to put in the toolbox for later on. The first one is to say that if you do one thing wrong, make sure you don't do two. And if you do two things wrong, make sure you don't do three. David here quickly lets one thing become another thing because he wants to cover it up. What started off as adultery or beyond becomes then manipulatively using the situation and the people that did his bidding to see how he could get rid of Uriah. Adultery quickly becomes murder. Well, it's even before adultery, isn't it? Lust quickly becomes murder. Now, that might seem like a big escalation of events. Things went south very quickly, and they did. But one sin can often pave the way to another. One element of wrongdoing can quickly entrench that as a way to act, so you do it again, and it starts to become a bit more normal, and you don't think so much of it anymore. If you sin once, make sure you don't do it twice. If you sin twice, make sure you don't do it three times, because it escalates from a double look to murder. And maybe in your life it won't be that extreme, of course. But it might be that you do something and then you have to lie to cover it up. And you've already compounded the problem. And then you have to lie again to back that one up and it starts to get bigger and bigger. Maybe it's that you get more and more comfortable with an element of wrongdoing because it just seems second nature because you've done it so many times. Stop the cycle as quickly as you possibly can. 
Because all the while this is going on, the implications are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. More people are getting drawn into this vortex. Stop the cycle as early as you possibly can. If you do something wrong, stop it there before it leads to a second thing, a third thing, and beyond. Sin benefits no one. It might seem good on the surface for a time, but it really does benefit no one. The only reason it seems good to some is because our minds have been so warped away from God and the way God wants us to live that we think, oh, it it can't be that bad. Surely that's innocuous. That one doesn't really matter very much, does it? Sin wants to blind you to sin so that you carry on in it and don't think it's a problem. The Holy Spirit wants to bring you conviction to stop the cycle as early as possible so that you aren't drawn into further ruin and other people aren't drawn into the vortex of evil and decay. When shown his sin, then David acknowledges it quite quickly. He acknowledges that it's against God ultimately, but that other people are implicated too. If you need to confess something today, confess it. A spouse, a close friend, say, this is going on for me and I just need to be honest about it. I'm not proud, but I want to put a stop to it. Come talk to me if you've got no one else to at the end, because sometimes it's just in the act of saying it, it brings it out into the light. And it can't fester once it's in the light because God starts to shine on it, to change it. If you need to confess something today, do it. Put a stop to the cycle so that one thing doesn't become two and two doesn't become three. Stop it as early as you possibly can because it will benefit you, it will benefit other people, and it will bless God. First thing then, if you do one thing wrong, don't do two. If you do two things wrong, don't do three. The second thing to say is that people fall, God doesn't. David shows us that even the great heroes of the faith can do really evil things. That even the heroes of the faith can get things wrong in a big way. David was a key figure in the life of all God's people. We still look back on him today as a key part in the story of God. And yet here, he spectacularly fell. And as I've said, as he fell, he dragged other people in with him, as they were then implicated, and Uriah was ultimately killed. Unfortunately, there are many examples today of similar things, church leaders falling in a spectacular way, not doing what they've been called to do, but getting caught up in sin. Ministry leaders, other Christians, I don't need to spell anything out because you've probably got an example in your head already. Lives have been ruined. Relationships have been shattered. Ministries and churches have crumbled. And God, whose throne is founded on righteousness and justice, weeps over that. God is not indifferent. He's not looking elsewhere disinterested. God weeps. He weeps for and with the people that have been harmed, including those right at the center. It's important to say and to make the distinction that things that might have been done in the name of Jesus aren't necessarily of Jesus and his way of living. People who follow Jesus have done things that don't follow Jesus in any way at all. People fall, God doesn't. Now, I hope that you've had some great examples of spiritual leadership, of parent figures who've loved you, of mentors, of youth leaders, of people that have poured into you in a great way. 
And I want you to hold on to each of those things and say thanks to God for them. But if they're doing their job well, they should be encouraging you to build yourself on Jesus, never on them. Because Jesus is the rock, firm beneath all of our feet. And they are not, whether they fall into this or anything else. The only sure foundation for your life is Jesus. As the old hymn puts it, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And each time we come to God, we celebrate that he is the one who is and will always be firm beneath our feet. He is the one who will always be true in a world of falsity and lies. He is the one who is always and in everything good. He is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever in a world of change and decay. We celebrate that he is a God who is faithful when others let us down. That he is constant when others come and go and wax and wane. Jesus will never fail you. Build your life on him, the solid rock, and nothing will befall you that is not redeemable in his name. Second thing then, people may fall, and unfortunately they do, but God will not. Build yourself on him. Finally, God is able to redeem and to bring right out of wrong. Part of the reason God sent Nathan in was to bring a swift end to what had happened. He didn't want it to carry on because he knew that it could have got bigger and bigger. That people that knew about it might have started getting uh, killed or taken away from the action. And in Psalm 51, after acknowledging his own sin, David goes on to say, Lord, remake me. Help me not to think of that as right anymore. Do something within me. Make me clean. And then he says... Help me to teach transgressors your ways, so sinners turn back to you. Now, he's not doing this out of spite to make other people go through what he did. He's doing this because he has tasted of the goodness and the mercy of God, and he wants other people who need it to taste of it as well. We talk, don't we, about falls from grace. Now, really, that's not the way that Christians see it, because if we fall, we fall into God's mercy, God wants to forgive us. He wants to make things right. He wants things to be made good again. So we fall into his mercy and we're raised back by his grace. Now, of course, that's not necessarily into the same position or to have the same influence as someone once did. But everyone can be restored by God's grace to serve him, to be a door holder in his house. Our position before God is the most important thing about us, not our position before other humans. So God can restore people, not necessarily to exactly what they were doing before, but God can restore them in his grace. There's more that needs to be said about how we can be like Nathan, how we can help other people to see their wrongdoing, Galatians 6 tells us that we've got to do it with a gentle spirit. No, no meanness about it. No trying to punish someone. It's got to be done in gentleness. But it is an important role for us as brothers and sisters in the same family, under Jesus the head. Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that brings people conviction. And even a prayer that someone would see their wrongdoing, would see the error in their ways, is important. 
But behind all of this, God is able to bring things back to good. David goes on then to continue to lead the people to win some more battles, to conceive Solomon, who went on to be the wisest person that's ever lived, and a great king over the people. David wasn't done at this point because God restored him and brought him back, used him. He worked through this bad episode in his life, but ultimately still had good on the other side. God is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him, even when those things in themselves weren't very good. Now, whether that's something that you've done or something that's happened to you, God is able to work all things in your life together for good. Now, that's not necessarily going to happen overnight. And this isn't a glib kind of say sorry and it all goes away. Because God is founded, his his throne is founded on righteousness and justice. This is a reminder rather that sin, repeated sin, warped thoughts and minds and actions, if that disqualified people indefinitely, then the only person on the ministry team would be Jesus. He's able to forgive us, to remake us, to restore us from big sins and little He's able to work all things together for good when the things themselves just weren't good. He's been able to do that with me. I'm sure that your life is a testimony that he's done that with many of you. And the offer and invitation to those who maybe don't know Jesus here today or would say, if they were really honest, I am living in a bit of darkness in that area of my life or maybe in the whole thing. The invitation to you is to come into the light to bring yourself and everything that comes with you into the light and let Jesus heal you. Because that light isn't a spotlight to, to shame you, to put you out in front of other people so that they can laugh or mock. The light is there to heal you so that the Holy Spirit can put his finger right where it needs to go, can take things away from you that aren't befitting of him and can restore you to be used in God's service again. In the darkness, things fester. But in the light, things can be healed. One John one verse five says, "This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you: God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth." But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Let's pray.